0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Maxi, Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound.
1: That should keep him occupied for quite some time.
0: I'm beginning to like you, Mr. Bond. Oh,
1: call me James.
0: Resound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and top secret audio dispatches we find all over the world on the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and play you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound.
2: Hello, Felix. Get over here right away. What's up? The girl's dead.
0: It's hard to believe that James Bond started out as an ornithologist. Well, at least his namesake did. Legend has it that Ian Fleming, author of the James Bond series, himself a birdwatcher, wanted a name for his character that was brief, masculine, and unromantic. So when he stumbled upon an ornithologist named James Bond, he swiped it. Fleming said, I wanted Bond to be an extremely dull, uninteresting man to whom things happened. When I was casting around for a name for my protagonist, I thought, by God, James Bond is the dullest name I ever heard. Of course, Bond is anything but dull. He's the exact opposite. A rugged, cocky playboy who can ski off a cliff in a tuxedo, kill a dozen enemies on his way down, land in a casino, and before even ordering his legendary drink, shaken, not stirred, catch a poison dart between his thumb and forefinger that was aimed at his head.
1: Well, the new miss Galore. Where do you hide your gold knuckles in this outfit?
0: Sure, he has his famous good looks and gadgets that have gotten him out of countless snares. But where would Bond be without that famous lick? guitar lick, I mean, whose authorship, as you're about to hear, has been under dispute. As the James Bond franchise celebrates its 50th year, in this hour's documentary, we get at what's been driving him all these years, the beat.
1: In the early days when United Artists was not only distributing but financing the Bond films as far back as Dr. No in 1962. The music was always thought of as not just an important dramatic part of the film, but also as a kind of marketing tool.
3: Burlingame, John Burlingame, author, academic,
1: journalist. UA back in that era was very, very keen on utilizing the songs, acquiring the most popular artists. Making sure that the song not only fulfilled its dramatic function in the picture, but also could frankly get on the radio and help to promote the movie to potential moviegoers.
4: Nobody does
1: it better
4: for your eyes only. live and let die.
5: It was really important, I think, in sustaining the series as a whole that they came up with a formula that could be applied to all of the films, not just through casting, but also through some of the other cinematic elements, and music really becomes a part of that.
3: Smith, Jeff Smith, University of Wisconsin.
5: Especially given the kind of international appeal of the character, it's been said that whether or not people speak English, everybody can simply hear that familiar James Bond theme and it is immediately recognizable tag for the character
1: uh, l- let me d- let me just sort of riff on that for a second <laughs> I
0: don't
1: know it.
6: <laughs>
4: I actually, hang on. Um. <laughs> from the elegant club rooms of Mayfair to exotic island night spot. From Venice to Istanbul. From Paris to London. Agent 007 cuts an inimitable path through the palaces and boudoirs of
6: espionage. Nice. To Bond's profession involves deluxe travel, exotic climbs, exclusive clubs.
1: The theme song and the score of any Bond film is really critical, not only to our appreciation of the film, but to the uh, impact of the movie itself. It tends to set the tone. It gives you a sense of the sort of uh, exotic colors of the places we're visiting. It propels the action. It gives you a sense of the romantic moments. The music is really a highly important part of any Bond film. I'm not that kind of masseuse. Uh, I'm not that kind of
6: customer. Medium dry martini, lemon peel, shaken, not stirred. Vodka? Of course. See Sean Connery as James Bond, master of murder mystery and incredible suspense in Dr. No in Color. What else do we know about this Chinese gentleman? Nothing much, except his name.
4: Dr. No.
3: High Court, London, 2001.
2: Composer John Barry, famous for his James Bond film scores, is involved in a High Court dispute over who wrote the 007 theme.
1: In the case of Dr. No, you actually have several songs within the body of the film, and that's because Monty Norman who scored that film, was actually a fairly well-known songwriter from the London stage.
4: All the people down Kingston town, you know, all the people go jump up, arms about weaving in and out, it's so easy to jump up.
1: Much of what Mr. Norman had written was more or less designed to give you the exotic flavor of the Caribbean and Jamaica, so you hear the sort of calypso tunes... underneath the mango tree, which was a song he had written to be sung by Ursula Andress when she emerges from the sea.
4: Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me, come watch for the moon. Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me, make booloo loops soon.
3: Looking for shells?
1: No, I'm just looking.
3: Stay where you are!
1: I can assure you, my intentions are strictly honorable. So the colors are different. But when it came time to put something instrumental under the opening scenes, they felt they needed something dynamic and contemporary. And i suddenly remembered something that i'd written for a musical called a house for mr Bizwas. i was born with this unlucky sneeze and what is i worse, was I born
0: with this unlucky sneeze, and what is worse i came into the world the wrong way round on it's all agreed that i am the reason why my father fell into the village pond and
1: drowned this was the genesis of the james bond theme monty had written a piece of music that was then taken to john barry for orchestrating and arranging will you tell him sir yes sir hello
6: w 6 n report my signals report my signals over Monty Norman had written the theme, and it didn't have the impact that they wanted.
3: Flick. Vic. Flick. Guitarist. 1962 original James Bond theme.
6: So the editor at the time, Peter Hunt, he remembered John Barry, and he remembered the John Barry sound, which was mostly the guitar soloing, and he commissioned John Barry to do it.
1: And Barry at the time had had a very popular instrumental group called the John Barry Seven, and was getting his feet wet with movies in the early 1960s. John
6: Barry Seven had recorded the music for Beat Girl. Hey, baby, you feel sexy, Coragel?
2: Let's go downstairs and fly, huh?
4: <laughs> Come on, Dave.
2: Oh, in you go. Don't forget to write.
6: So John Barry, and he called me in round to his apartment in London. Evening, sir. When do you sleep, 007? And said, you've got a sound in mind for this theme. So I said, yeah, it needs to be really down the bottom, real edgy and vibrant. And he said, ah, oh, that's great. So we'll put some brass around it. Day
3: one.
2: Mr. Barry, 67, and Mr. Norman, 72, faced each other across the courtroom today as a number of recordings were played to the jury, including Underneath the Mango Tree, the theme from Beat Girl, Bad Sign, Good Sign, and the disputed James Bond theme.
1: Barry's career uh, as a pop musician, late 50s and early 60s, really sort of dovetailed with his entry into films in 60, 61, and 62. So they needed somebody who could bring a fresh sound to the film and it was an inspired choice without question but also he was known to the record world and the music world and i think that that automatically lent itself to ua's concept of let's not just put a great piece of music behind this film let's help sell it to the public
4: james bond 007 license to kill whom
6: he pleases where he pleases when he pleases it were all done in a rush because, we have got to remember, this was the first one. And of course, the broccolis were running out of money. They hadn't got a distributor yet for the film.
4: I admire your luck, Mr...
6: Bond.
1: James Bond.
4: Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to, um, raise the limit?
1: I have no objection. Certainly, the James Bond theme, as performed by John Barry's group and, of course, arranged by John Barry, really sort of set the tone, not only for Dr. No, but for all the Bond films of the 60s to come.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the James Bond theme. Suspense, unexpected thrills, and extraordinary danger. See James Bond pit his devastating and deadly wiles against Dr. No. music recording engineers didn't have the sound or the gumph or the uh, knowledge to get the pop sound that the broccolis wanted and Peter Hunt wanted so uh, we were very specific about who we wanted, we got Eric Tomlinson to do the recording and he set the studio up with uh, the usual thing with a rhythm section back along the wall and the the brass out there with the screen in front of them and, and the rhythm section, drums and percussion and stuff like that up against another wall. It was all round the wall, really. Because, and then John Barry in the middle, waving his arms about. They showed us a little bit of film just to get some atmosphere going. And of course Sean Connery was prancing about and doing his thing. Next, Mr. bonza Yes. And the sound that was recorded was kind of distinctive because it was the guitar that I used, which is a Clifford Essex Paragon Deluxe, which is a hollow body. I had a Diamond pickup on it, and the sound that I got over overplaying the, the bass strings and slightly ahead of the beat gave it a little bit of an excitement.
1: The James Bond theme establishes the character in music. It's dangerous sounding, it's fast moving. Remember, it was written in 1962, so it has a kind of twangy guitar, rock and roll vibe, but then halfway through it sort of segues into this sort of big band jazz piece, which again was tremendously inspired for the time because it's partly rock, it's partly jazz, it's a little sexy, it's very dangerous. It's everything you need to say about James Bond in under two minutes, musically.
6: You know, you don't really know what it's going to be. You didn't know it was going to have a future, and it was just another session, another recording session, you know, turn up, electric guitar, please. And funny enough, I had a Fender Stratocaster. It was stolen at about April, May 1962. And so the only really other electric guitar that I had was this hollow body sound, hollow body guitar. And I'm rather pleased I did, because that was the sound that's carried through the ages. So there was a feeling of uh, something important at the time, but, of course, we didn't realise that it was going to be as important as it was.
2: Day two. Representing Mr Norman, James Price QC said that Sunday Times articles suggested Mr Norman had been collecting money for a piece of music he didn't write, and labelled him a little known London musician who appears to live quietly and collect his royalties.
1: John Barry's job was only to come in and arrange and perform that two-minute piece of music over the top of the film. What he found when he went to see the movie was that editor Peter Hunt loved it so much that he utilized that same two-minute piece of music all through the picture, which therefore became a kind of identifying character theme for Sean Connery as James Bond. Morning, Bledal Smith. Morning Bond. Sorry to talk you so early, but I need some information. Go ahead. All you
6: have on Dr. No and Crab Key. Ms. bring me the files on Dr. No, will you? Well, it was good. I loved the whole film. Didn't go to the premiere, and funny enough, neither did John Barry. I had to go and see it at the local cinema, and was duly impressed with the film, and impressed with the opening titles, and the sound of a god. Like to send
2: a cable? Yes, of course. Oh, by the way, the car you ordered, it's been delivered. It's a number five parking lot. Thank you. Good night. Good night,
6: Mr Bond. It's a bit whenever he turns up or climbs out of the water or whatever, you know, they, they used to put the dunga and dung dung bit going on.
3: Day three.
2: Mr. Norman gave evidence for the whole day, becoming agitated when Mark Warby, representing the Times, suggested that United Artists came to an arrangement with Barry as a face-saving deal for Norman. That was rubbish, Mr. Norman said.
1: It served Barry well because for the next film, From Russia With Love, he got the call to score the film. So it not only served the movie brilliantly, but it set the tone for the Bond scores to come.
6: Only the second James Bond thriller could be more exciting than the first.
3: From Russia with love
1: I fly to you It was always part of the formula, beginning with the second film, From Russia With Love, to hire a top vocalist, and in this case, a top songwriter, to supply a theme that would make sense within the dramatic context and hopefully get on the radio as well. So in 1963, London's hottest songwriter was Lionel Bart, who had just had a huge hit in the West End with Oliver. So he was a very well-known name, and it was like, well, let's get that guy. Maybe he can supply the kind of hit tune that we will need to help promote the picture, and also something that will be right for the movie.
6: To Russia I flew,
3: but there are men.
1: In the 1960s, almost none of the lyricists, or in the case of Lionel Bart, composer and lyricist, actually saw the movie. It's not even clear to me whether Lionel Bart read the script. Certainly in the case of Goldfinger and Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, the lyricists never saw any footage. Many of them didn't even read the script. They were simply told a little bit about the plot and what was going to happen, and they went off and did their thing. I seriously doubt that Lionel Bart ever saw a frame of footage before he wrote that song. who had had several hits in that period of time, came in to sing it.
4: James Fox, that notorious, amazing Doctor No Secret Agent is back, and half the world is out to kill him. From Russia with love. They dance for him. They yearn for him. They
2: die for him. <laughs>
1: So you have Lionel Bart writing a tune, but John Barry, who had made the Bond theme so successful, was brought in to actually write the entire score for the first time. He's utilizing Lionel Bart's tune, he's utilizing the Monty Norman James Bond theme, and then he's also writing additional music as the locations in Turkey and Russia and in London lend themselves to that kind of treatment. So this time, with simply one man at the helm, there's a consistency and a coherence, I think, musically to From Russia With Love that you didn't really have in Dr. No.
3: Day four.
2: A tired looking Monty Norman presented a book to the court showing his earnings for a 12 year period to be 485,000 pounds, saying that the proportion of this to his total earnings was very significant
4: is in operation, and what an operator he is in
5: Ian Fleming's Thunderbolt.
1: It was always United Artists' intent, whether this was artistic or not, I can't say, but UA loved the idea of having the title of the movie in the song.
3: They're
4: poisonous.
6: Here, give me your arm. Sit down. Now turn over. This
2: is going to hurt a bit. <laughs> it's the first time I've tasted women. They're rather good.
1: In the case of Thunderball, the title was thought of as so ridiculous. What do you do with Thunderball? It's not even a word. So they actually wrote a different song, a song called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang because John Barry had heard that that's what the Italians called James Bond. So he and Leslie Brickus wrote a song about James Bond because they didn't want to write a song called Thunderball. And by the way, it was recorded by Dionne Warwick.
3: He's and he's smooth And he can soothe you like
4: vanilla The gentleman's a killer
3: Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang
1: But then at the last minute, United Artists said, no, 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 we have to have a song called Thunderball. We want that title on the radio every five minutes. Nobody knows what Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is. Forget it. So they had to dump Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and at the last minute, Don Black came in and with John Barry wrote a song called Thunderball.
6: He always runs while lovers
1: walk, which Tom Jones then sang the hell out of. He
3: acts while other men just talk. He looks at this world and wants it all. So he strikes. Like
1: And it's now considered, along with Goldfinger, another one of those classic Bond songs of the 60s. But it was United Artists' idea to make sure that the title was in the song.
6: Well, how are you doing? How many have you identified so far? Let's continue. Uh, Mr. Bond? Yes? This is Mr. Goldfinger. how do you do? How do you do?
1: So you have a song called Goldfinger. And what do you do with that? Well, John Barry went to two lyricist friends of his, Leslie Bricusse and Anthony Newley, and said, here's what we have. It's sort of like Mac the Knife. It's a villain song. And they went away and came up with this, what they thought was, you know, acceptable, kind of provocative, maybe even a little silly lyric about this man who loves gold. Then Shirley. Shirley Bassey, sold it, sold it big time uh, in the recording and in the film. And you sort of thought, wow, okay, Goldfinger, well, I can't wait. Goldfinger,
4: he's the man, the man with the mightiest touch, a spider's touch. A cold finger Beckons you to enter his web of sin But don't go in
5: And that really kind of establishes a template that they can use for other songs in the series. And part of what Bassy brings to the table is just a big voice. Uh, very bold, assertive vocal tone. And I think the Bond films have done well when they've used singers who kind of match that.
6: doing Goldfinger of course and then the bit where there's a big long note at the end and uh, after she'd done about two or three takes where she like I can't do it can I I can't sing this love, bloody song and onwards he said give it one more try go on so anyway there was a scuffling going on behind the the, the screen where part of her underwear suddenly came over on the top of the because she thought her bra was holding her in so she took that off three over the top of the screen and got the last note so we were all pleased about that in place can we take it up another key and see what happens this is gold mr bond all my life i've been in love with its color its brilliance i think you've made your point goldfinger thank you for the demonstration good night mr bond do you expect me to talk no mr bond i expect you to die
5: One of the things that they had established very early on as a kind of paradigm for musical formula was that there were these kind of four elements that they could go back to again and again. One, of course, is the James Bond theme. The other is the alternate James Bond theme, which is 007 and gets featured in films, although not to the degree that the original James Bond theme does. And then you have a new title song recorded anew for each entry in the series. And then quite often, a little melody or a light motif which is used for the villain. What Goldfinger did to kind of complicate that is that, you know, the book itself, of course, is named after the villain. So the title song in some way has to be named for the villain as well. But if you listen closely to the lyrics... And if you think about the fact that the music actually incorporates certain elements of the Bond theme, it's not clear that it's really about Goldfinger. It's almost as much about Bond himself. And I think the songs have really enjoyed playing with that kind of duality. Now hear this, Goldfinger. Your luck has just changed.
3: Day five.
2: Mr. Barry said he first saw Dr. No at the London Pavilion Cinema on a Sunday afternoon and was amazed to find his theme all over the movie. He was told the producers were not prepared to pay him more money, but he would be used on the next Bond movie.
0: You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. We're parachuting into the music of James Bond in this hour's documentary, Shaken, Not Stirred. If listening to these notes inspires you to write notes of your own, send us one. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Now, back to Shaken, Not Stirred.
5: It's really rather remarkable how the sound of that kind of twangy electric guitar has become a kind of shorthand for spy music more generally.
1: John Barry invented spy music, let's not forget that.
5: And it may just be a kind of happy coincidence of a couple of elements but you have a very similar guitar line, that kind of rising chromatic electric guitar line in Secret Agent Man. And that's basically the hook that gets you into that song.
3: Secret
4: Agent Man
1: And it became The Spy Vibe. The
5: popularity of Bond in the mid-1960s spawned a number of different imitators.
1: Let's face it, there were a lot of spy movies in the 60s.
6: Mr. Helm, I agreed to have you brought here because Cowboy wants the pleasure of eliminating you.
5: Personally. If you look at the kind of music which appears in the rival Bond series like the Matt Helm films or the Derek Flint films.
1: Or on television shows like Danger Man or The Man From U.N.C.L.E.
5: And Get Smart is a comic riff on the whole espionage cycle.
3: possible.
1: And to that you could also
5: add the Wild Wild West, which was envisioned as kind of James Bond <laughs> West of the Pecos.
4: Oh no, private detective girl type. What do you do for bread? <laughs> I guess I should have known. A
5: honey West, would which you have a kind this. of female James Bond. You wouldn't be. Uh... Honey West. Or the Avengers. They're all part of that moment in the 1960s.
1: They all really owe a debt to John Barry's original Bond music design.
3: day six.
2: Dr. Stanley Sadie, musicologist for the prosecution, broke the James Bond theme's 60 bars down to 14 sections. He said that the main themes were derived from the song Bad Sign Good Sign and concluded that Norman was the prime composer.
6: He's bigger than life, facing a thousand deaths, and you only live twice, and twice is the only way to live.
4: We're too late. Well, at least he died on the job.
1: You Only Live Twice, I think, is timeless. I think it's one of the best Bond songs ever written. Bond is dead. Bond is alive. Kill Bond, now! John Barry needed to give a sort of musical sense of the Orient, and so much of the picture takes place in Japan, but also it needed to be a kind of romantic tune that would apply to Bond's various female conquests throughout the picture, but also it's just plain beautiful. And in the case of Nancy Sinatra as the singer, there's a gentle quality to her voice. It's a little bit warmer than the kind of big, hard-hitting sound that we had had before with Shirley Bassey and Tom Jones in the previous two pictures. Because she'd had a couple of hits, of course, so she was very hot as an artist at the time. And she came on board and gave a little bit more of a feminine touch, I think, to that song. And definitely a vulnerability as well. i yeah. Barry wrote songs that sounded simple, but in fact were often quite complex in terms of their chordal structures. Nancy was felt out of her league when she came to London to record that in April of 1967, and in fact had to sing it in pieces because it was difficult for her. At the end of the day, what we're hearing is actually pieced together from about 25 different takes. I asked Leslie Brickus if he had ever considered using the line that Ian Fleming uses in the novel. You only live twice, once when you were born and once when you look death in the face. And he looked at me and said, who would want to sing that?
3: Day seven.
2: A packed High Court today heard Mr. Warby for the defense ask John Barry, Did Monty Norman write the James Bond theme? Barry answered, absolutely not.
5: doesn't get much bigger than Paul McCartney who is clearly you know the right artist at the right time for the reboot you know when you have a former Beatle and George Martin Beale's producer in charge of the music for live and let die it's a way for the producers to kind of hedge their bets that this will remind everyone of what bond sounds like at the same time that we're seeing Roger Moore for the first time playing bond
1: this is the bond adventure with more excitement more action more danger, and more. Much more, Roger Moore as James Bond, 007.
3: And
1: And so you have, for the very first time, a real kind of rock and roll track underscoring your Bond film, which of course not only led to a huge hit on radio, but also for the very first time, an Oscar nomination for best song.
3: What
4: do
6: you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir.
4: Diamonds are forever. They are all I need to please me. They can stimulate and tease me. They won't leave in the night. I've no fear that they might deserve me. Diamonds
1: Diamonds are forever forever is, depending on how you look at it, about a girl in love with diamonds, or about male failure to commit, or it may be, in fact, about male genitalia, depending on how you look at the song and how you interpret what you're listening to. In the case of Diamonds Are Forever, there's a line in the middle of the song that says, touch it, stroke it, and undress it. John Barry and Don Black thought they were being provocative and sexy by writing a song that was partly about diamonds, but also partly about sex. Diamonds are
4: forever, sparkling around my little thing.
5: and death have always been two very important elements of Bond as a character. They really represent kind of the two halves. And the songs always have tended to reflect that because to a certain degree the lyrical double entendres that appear always seem to refer to the sexual prowess of the character. I mean, I think that's partly what's captured in you know, Nobody Does It Better.
4: Nobody does Better,
6: better, 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 better you slept well a little restless but i got off eventually
5: just
1: a slight stiffness coming on no look i'm sorry i can't uh, something big's come up
5: i think he's attempting re-entry sir in the case of the double entendres i always felt that that was just an extension of the kind of tongue-in-cheek quality, which was already present to a certain degree in Ian Fleming's novels to begin with. I mean, if you think about the names of the heroines, which are hard to take straight, you know, Honey Rider, Pussy Galore, they're already kind of double entendres just in the way the Bond girls are named.
6: Hi, I'm Plenty.
5: But of course you are.
6: Plenty O'Toole.
5: And then on top of that, there are the witticisms that are usually used to punctuate action scenes or used, you know, right before the camera pans away as Bond prepares to bed another lovely girl. I'm going to be
6: completely useless to you. Oh, surely be able to lick you into shape.
5: And I think the tension between those elements, the tendency to play the sexual prowess very tongue-in-cheek as a kind of ongoing running gag or joke in the series, and the emphasis on the masculine violence, the license to kill aspect of Bond, those have always been kind of in tension with one another. Hey, what
3: the hell is this? Hey, listen, you can't do this to me. I've got friends in this town. The women are still falling for him.
4: For
5: your eyes. It's Roger Moore as Ian Fleming's James Bond 007. It was the first time, I believe, that uh, one of the singers was actually featured as part of the title sequence. There's a story about that particular song Bill Conti of course had been new to the Bond series he'd been hired to write the music and hired to write the title song for For Your Eyes Only and so he had written a version of it and played it for the producers and they said you know this is great this is wonderful we love it there's just one problem with it the first four words of the song need to be for your eyes only (laughs) It's as though they wanted to ensure that you would have that very concrete link that from the minute you hear that song playing on the radio or on screen, you know, it becomes a statement of the title. Perhaps it's simply a kind of reaction to what had happened with The Spy Who Loved Me, where the title is actually kind of buried in the middle of the chorus. It's quite possible that the song, which proved to be very popular, didn't really remind people very much of James Bond. And for that reason, the producers wanted to go back to kind of core principles. When we want a title song, we want a title song.
4: Nobody
3: does it better Makes me feel sad for the rest Nobody does it Half as good as you Baby, you're the
1: best Marvin Hamlish was the composer, Carol Bear Sager the lyricist, and it's a great phrase. Sager came up with this title, and Marvin was immediately inspired, and Carly Simon really knocked it out of the park. I mean, it's just a brilliant job.
6: Your time's running out, Stromberg. Yours too, Mr. Bund. Yours too. Day eight.
2: After closing statements from the Sunday Times and the prosecution, the judge summed up for two hours and the jury retired to consider their verdict. Meanwhile, all interested parties, excluding the judge, watched Dr. No while waiting for the verdict.
5: There's almost been a kind of pro forma quality to the string of bond songs that have been recorded over the past 20 years. I was just thinking about this and it's like, you know, I'm not sure I could hum or sing one of these songs. Golden eye,
3: I found his weakness. Won't ever die. The
5: world is
3: not
5: It's still important because it generates publicity. It's something which just gets reported as entertainment news. But I'm not sure that there's anything in that string of films that's as memorable as, say, you know, Live and Let Die or A View to a Kill. A
4: sacred wine, a mystery keeping.
5: Song performed by Duran
1: Duran. Inevitably, as James Bond changed with the decades, the music would also change.
3: Magnificent view. My friends call me Jinx.
5: My friends call me James Bond.
3: Uh, Now there's a mouthful.
5: They've always looked for artists who could, in certain respects, fit into that formula in a way that makes sense, but also who were commercially hot, commercially viable. Overall, their track record has been pretty good, if you look at the fact that they've had performers like Tina Turner, Madonna, Bono and Edge, Garbage even Tom Jones these are people who have had really long sustained careers as entertainers and whose names really mean something in the marketplace I'm
4: gonna
5: I think many of them were in a position where the added exposure, you know, may not mean that much to them in terms of their career. Filmmakers, in, in many ways, are really trying to capitalize on their popularity.
1: At the time Madonna did Die Another Day, there was a great deal of controversies, particularly in the Bond community, about whether this was any good. And it was, let's face it, a kind of techno song. And did James Bond need a techno main title? And yet it was a colossal hit, the biggest hit musically that Bond had had in years. So it certainly did its job in calling attention to the movie. And it was certainly different. And some said, in fact, it was kind of fresh and maybe we needed that.
4: Let the mayhem begin.
1: So when David Arnold came on board for the next film, Tomorrow Never Dies, there was a thought that it should be a little bit more like we used to hear, a little bit more like the Barry sound.
5: David Arnold, I think, has been very important in maintaining a kind of house style for the series as a whole.
1: He admired very much John Barry's style and in fact he had been working on an album of his own which was a series of covers of old James Bond classics
5: one of the things that Arnold has done is to really maintain that same principle that there should really be a feeling of integration between the very familiar, consistent elements of the Bond soundtrack, and that especially means the James Bond theme. And that title song really feels as though it's a kind of extension of that, in terms of its harmonies, in terms of its melodies.
3: I think that's
1: what really solidified Arnold in the minds of the Bond producers as the man to stick with, because he brought the Barry style, the panache, the bold kind of sound, and also the, a, a melodic sense, I might add.
5: But he's also been very skillful at updating it as well, and often with the use of new instruments. There's a lot more of an electronic sound, I think, to what you get in Arnold's music. In
1: 1997, the London Times published a story saying that John Barry really wrote the James Bond theme. Monty Norman, who scored Dr. No, and who has always been credited with the Bond theme, sued for libel.
6: The Sunday Times newspaper in London was saying Monty Norman wasn't up to the standard of composing that was needed for a film.
1: The case came to the London High Court.
6: The Times flew me across there, and uh, and I got prepped before I went into the courtroom. This guy said, just say yes or no, don't go off on a tangent, just answer the questions. You know.
1: And in fact, the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun is very clearly provable as Monty Norman's work.
6: But John Barry never said that he did write it. Other people kept on writing, but he had written it, so John Barry wasn't implicated in any way. They had a room full of music experts all saying that this was from something else, and this bit was from something else, and the intro, of course, has been used many times.
1: And And Monty, in fact, uh, acknowledged John as being the architect of the sound, the arranger and orchestrator who made it work as well as it did. It got very legal and very
6: nasty and very silly, actually. And Monty Norman made off with £30,000, I think.
3: Day nine.
2: Here at the High Court, the composer Monty Norman was awarded £30,000 in libel damage over a newspaper article claiming he had wrongly taken credit for composing the James Bond theme. Following the hearing, Mr Norman said, The Sunday Times always said they were only interested in the truth. Now they've got the truth. Despite their differences, both composers can be grateful for Ian Fleming's creation. John Barry has gone on to win five Academy Awards, while Monty Norman is reputed to have earned around a million dollars in royalties for the two-minute theme. But spare a thought for Vic Flick, whose unique guitar sound features on the recording. His fee for the session? £7.10. I
6: went back to the hotel and came back first class and thank you very much. (laughs) I'm kind of thrilled to have been part of the history of the Bond series. Well, James Bond, of course, is part of my life, you know, because I go out and do a little bit of a solo thing. I go to the Bond weekends, and all the aficionados and fans all come along and pay to be introduced to the stars. You know, when I play, that's kind of my tune. I think people must think that it's the only tune that I can play, but but I I do know another one. Well, I understand 00s have a very short life expectancy.
1: Not everything works. Some are better than others. But, you know, overall, uh, over the course of 22 official Bond films and two unofficial Bond films, there's been an, an enormous amount of great music made. Job's done.
4: I assume you have no
3: regrets.
6: I don't. What about you? Shaken, not
3: stirred.
0: Was produced by Libby Douglas and Russell Stapleton of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation.
1: Yes, I have a vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. Right away, sir. Uh, how much is that?
0: $4.25. Ooh. <laughs> uh, what if I use the house brand? It's the same price, sir. Oh. Well, um, what kind of beer do you have? Heineken, Bex,
3: Amsterlight. Corona... Ah, Corona. I have a Corona. Shaken, not stirred.
0: ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxine. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. ReSound's intern is Lily Bowie. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency. On the web at dojo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agudino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.